Good morning, church. It's great to see all of you here today. Uh, I'm sure that many of you heard by now, or if you haven't, I'm telling you right now, that um, starting tomorrow, um, I am beginning a three-month sabbatical. Um, Actually, I could tell you the minutes if if you'd like to know that. Um, uh, This church has a policy in place that has been in place for years that pastors are given a three-month sabbatical every seven years. Um, I, this is my 14th year of employment. Um, this is the first time I'm taking one. I have kept putting it off. And now, though, I see the elders insisted that I actually do need one, that I am actually pretty tired. Um, there's two reasons why I think that the elders have this policy in place that I think is very wise. One is uh, for the pastor uh, to be renewed. Um, Sabbath or sabbatical comes from the word Sabbath, which comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means ceasing or stopping. And so part of the purpose of this is that I cease from the normal work that I do, and I be more present, uh, first to God, then to my family, and then to aspects of my calling that I don't normally attend to. Um, so for me personally, that means I'm going to be spending a lot of time uh, with God, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with my family, and I'm going to be spending um, a lot of time doing, working on a PhD uh, that I have been working on for about six years that I've been <laughs> putting off. Um, so that's what I'm doing, and I also think it's very wise uh, for the sake of the congregation the congregations um, not be uh, revolving around one single leader or one single person's preaching or one single personality. And for you as a congregation to be reminded that the church is not a pastor, the church is the people, and that it is led by a very capable group of elders and staff. So um, that's, that's what's happening. And so um, I will miss you. I hope you pray for me and my family. Um, if you see me uh, in you know, Kroger or something, please don't be afraid. You can talk to me. Um, I am not, I am not uh, taking a Sabbath from people or friends, um, just from this daily work that goes on here. Um, so I hope that you will pray for us and I for you. With the encouragement of a dear friend, um, I wanted to turn to a passage this morning, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, which is also about a guy who needed some rest. But it's more than just a story about a guy getting some rest. It's also a story about how God meets us when we need him. And I'm guessing whether you are about to take some extended time away like I am or whether you are heading into a really intense time that you are in a place where you also need God to meet you. And that's what this story is about. So let me pray and then we'll go to God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you always give us what we need. And that is uh, a beautiful thing. And right now we need the word of God and we need the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would fill me and all of us with the Holy Spirit So that we would not just hear your word today, but respond to it and live according to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm reading a a very famous story from 1 Kings 19 about Elijah. Um, And this is immediately following another famous story that I'll refer to in just a moment. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to it because I will be referring to the previous chapter. Otherwise, you can find the reading on page 10 in the bulletin. So let's listen. Now Ahab, who was the king of Israel, told his wife Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. So Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. 
And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. He clearly has this speech memorized. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Yehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hezael, and Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Yehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Perhaps one of the most radical claims of Christianity, really one of the most remarkable things of all about it, is that it claims... The Christian faith claims that you and I can actually have a real personal relationship with, with God. Like a real relationship with the God of the universe, the God who made you. But what does that mean? I'm sure some of you have wondered what that actually really means. What does it mean to have a relationship with God? Who, who is God? What is God like? What does it mean to relate to him? How do, you, how do you connect with him? How does God connect with you? These are all really important questions. And one of the best ways that we can get answers to those questions is by actually reading stories, stories of people who, people like you and me, who actually had a relationship with God, who had an encounter with God. And we dare to believe that these are not just stories, that these are things that actually speak of the kind of relationship that we can have with God as well. And so this is one of those stories, one of those remarkable stories about a man who James says, a man just like you and me, Elijah, And not just how God met him, but how God met him in a place of real despair, real discouragement, a place when he needed uh, to be renewed. And this story, just for me personally, as someone who has often struggled with discouragement and at times depression, has been a really important story to me over the years to see the way that God wants to renew me and wants to renew you when we find ourselves in such places as well. So before I get into how God touches Elijah and renews him here, let me just give you a little bit of context, okay? Because this happens in the context of what just happened in the chapter before, 1 Kings 18, in the famous confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You may have heard this story before. It's quite an epic story. Ahab and Jezebel are the wicked kings and queen of 
Israel who have led the entire nation of Israel to worship the pagan god of Baal. And in chapter 18, Elijah challenges all the prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god, Baal or Yahweh, are the true god. So what they do is they go out into this big field, they set up two altars, the altar to Baal, altar to Yahweh, and they decide they're going to call down fire from their god and to see which one responds. So first, the prophets of Baal go, 450 of them. And they all begin to dance and pray and plead and cut themselves and do everything they can to try to get Baal to respond with fire. But nothing happens. Elijah begins to make fun of him. He says, oh, maybe Baal's on the phone. Uh, Maybe he's out to lunch. Maybe he's on the toilet. You know, why don't you yell a little louder? He can't hear you. So they keep yelling. Nothing happens. Finally, it's Elijah's turn. 450 prophets of Baal, one lonely prophet of Yahweh. The first thing he does is he takes 12 barrels of water and he pours all this water on the altar, one after another after another. Water is just running down this altar and then he stands back and he just lifts up his head to heaven and he says, Lord, send down your fire. And boom, the torrent of flames comes rushing down upon this altar and it burns up not just the sacrifice but the wood and the altar and the stones it evaporates licks up all the water and the trench around it destroys the ground itself it is this astonishing display of the power of god and elijah is just pumped i mean he is just like This is going to be epic. I mean, Ahab and Jezebel are going to repent. At least the nation is going to repent. Everybody's going to turn back to God. It's going to be this moment of national renewal as the whole nation turns back to Yahweh. And so he runs to Jezreel to get a front row seat to watch what he knows is going to happen. Except, do you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. Nobody repents. Ahab and Jezebel do not turn back to God. In fact, nobody turns back to God. Nobody calls for the resignation of this king and queen. Nobody repents. Nobody gets on their knees. Nobody marches in the streets. There's no coup. The only thing that happens is Elijah gets this little nice message from the queen in chapter 19, verse 2, that says, you're dead. You're a dead man. If I, if, if I don't kill you by this time tomorrow, <laughs> then you'll be surprised. And Elijah is devastated. He, he just, he can't believe it. This is a total career failure if you're a prophet, right? It is a total failure of his ministry. Everything that he's given himself to. I mean, he has done everything in his power, everything that he knows how to do, and nothing has happened. He's so confused. He's so despairing. Verse 3, he runs for his life. This courageous man who just took on 450 prophets of Baal runs for his life into the wilderness, and he comes to Beersheba, and it says he leaves his servant there. So basically, he lets go his entire staff, his entire staff of one, which is you know a sign of him giving up. He, he puts in his letter of resignation as a prophet. He goes out into the middle of the wilderness. He lies down under a bush, and he says, Lord, I'm done. I've had enough. Just take my life. Just take it right now. I'm done. Now, as an aside, please don't let anybody ever tell you that the Bible is full of these holy rollers, these super spiritual men and women uh, who are not people like you and me. Oh my goodness. I mean, can you relate to this? Elijah was desperate. He was done. 
Everything he worked for had failed. His dreams had fallen apart. He's scared, he's tired, he's discouraged, he's burned out, he's at the end of his rope, he's done with his life, he wants to quit it all. And my guess is that some of you in this room have felt that way before. There may be some of you in this room who feel this way right now. And I would guess if statistics are right and in a room this size with this many people, that there may be some of you who have even contemplated taking your own life, even recently. And what I want you to know is that God is for you, that he wants to meet you, and that he loves you. And he will not deliver your death wish, just as he would not give it to Elijah. The Bible is full of people just like you and me. And even the holiest people among us often find ourselves in places like this. And what does God do? What does he do? To meet people like Elijah, to meet people like you and me, to meet us and to restore us and to renew us. What does he do? I just want to look at the, the three beautiful, simple things that God does for Elijah in this story. He comforts him, he confronts him, and then he calls him. He comforts him, he confronts him, and then he calls him. Okay? Three C's. Makes it easy for you. And my name's Corey. That's four C's. Okay? So first, he comforts him. I love the beginning of this story, verses 5 through 8. So God sends this angel to Elijah. Now, listen. If you had an angel, an angelic vision, show up to you in a place of deep, what would you imagine that angel would do? Something pretty stupendous, right? Behold, I am the angel of the Lord, and I have come to deliver thee from thy despair with the grace of... You know, that's what you would expect an angel to do, right? Because that's what angels do. Not this angel. What does this angel do? He cooks. He's a cooking angel. You see that? Look. A little bread, a little water. Can't you just imagine that he like wakes him up? Hey, buddy. Hey. Time to wake up. Make some breakfast for you right here, buddy. Elijah sort of gets up. He eats the breakfast. And he's like, time to go back to bed, buddy. I know you're tired. Seriously, that's what this angel does. And I don't want you to overlook that too quickly because I think what is remarkable about this is that the very first thing that God does is he offers physical care, just physical comfort. He doesn't launch into a sermon. He doesn't say, shame on you, you big old prophet out here in the wilderness. No, the first thing he does is he cares for him. He offers him physical provision. And here I think what God demonstrates is that he is a, a far better friend and counselor than we often are to each other. Oftentimes when a friend or a spouse or someone that you know or even a child is discouraged or depressed, especially Christians have this problem. We tend to want to immediately find the spiritual fix. What's wrong with you? You're a Christian. You shouldn't be discouraged. You shouldn't be down. Something must be wrong. Have you, are you lacking in faith? Have you prayed? Have you confessed all known sin? Have you claimed the promises? Have you pleaded the blood? Have you rebuked the devil? Or have you expressed gratitude, right? There must be something wrong here. Let me find the spiritual fix. But what God shows us here is what many of us forget, that Elijah is a soul and spirit, but he is also a body. He's a physical man in a physical world. And sometimes, friends, you don't need a lecture. Or sometimes you don't even pray, need prayer or Bible study. Sometimes you just need a nap. I love what Martin Luther used to say. He said, he said, you want to know the way out of spiritual depression? You can try prayer, but sometimes what you really need is manual labor and a good cold beer. That's what Martin Luther said. Father of the faith, friends, right there. And, and that's, what, that's what we see here in this story, is that God starts with the physical. 
He cares for Elijah as a physical man. And not only does he care for him physically, he cares for him emotionally. Look, he asks him a question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, this is not like a question of surprise, like, whoa, what are you doing here? God knows why he's there. When God asks questions in the Bible, it's never to get information. It's to provoke self-reflection, right? He wants Elijah to reflect on what he is doing there. And notice what a good listener God is. Elijah does almost all the talking in this chapter. God just asks questions. See that? See that, men? You want to be like Jesus? Learn to ask questions. Be a good listener. God knows that what Elijah needs is not just care, but a listening ear. He needs a good counselor who can listen well, who can help him understand himself. And then he not only does that, but he cares for him spiritually. Verse 8, he sends him to Mount Horeb which in the Old Testament is a sort of a retreat center. He sends him on this 40-day personal retreat, arranges a meeting with God. Do you see how comprehensively God cares for Elijah? Physically, with food and water and a nap and rest. Emotionally, with a listening ear and friends. Spiritually, with a restorative retreat. See, God knows what complex creatures we are, and he wants to meet us in our wholeness. We humans are always trying to reduce each other to something less than the complex creatures that we are. So doctors will tell you, you are all physical, so get some rest, change your diet. You know, religious pastors like me will treat you as you're all spiritual, you know, have some faith, take some prayer time. Psychiatrists will treat you as you're all brain, right? Take this pill. But God knows that we are all of these things and more. He knows you are a body and a soul and a mind and a spirit. And God makes all kinds of things available to you to restore you. Food, drink, sleep, friendship, medicine, therapists, art, music, retreat times, work times, good books, good meals. He sees you in your complexity and he knows your need. He wants to restore you in your wholeness. And my point is this. If you're wondering today, if you're wondering who God is, And if he loves you or not, I want you to know this, that he does. He loves you, he pursues you, and he wants to, he made all of you, and he wants to redeem all of you, physically, spiritually, socially. He wants to redeem all of who you are. And don't overlook his care. You may be looking for a powerful spiritual experience, but what God might actually be offering you is a nap. And that is a sign of his grace. A sign of his mercy and love. And when you see him caring for you in these ways, we can then learn to care for each other in these complex ways as well. So that's just the very first simple thing that I want to point out, is that before God confronts him, before he does anything to him, he cares for him. He really cares for him and comforts him. But then he gets down to business. (laughs) Because the second thing God does is he confronts him. Look at verse 8. The angel wakes Elijah up the second time. He sends him to Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai, which is a hint to us that something dramatic is about to happen. Moses had met God on that same mountain in Exodus 33. And the first thing that God does is he confronts Elijah with a question. Verse 9, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds with this diatribe rather obnoxiously, right? He says, I did everything right. My plan was perfect. I'm the only one left. It didn't happen the way that it was supposed to happen. And with his words, he reveals that he is very angry. He is very mad. He's bitter. He's mad that God did not turn out, that that God did not have things work out the way he wanted them to. Now, let's look at God's tenderness. 
He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, stop being so self-righteous. He just simply calls him out to the mouth of the cave to meet God. He says, I want to show you something. And here's where we get to the famous part. First, a great and powerful wind comes and tears the mountain apart. But it says the Lord was not in the wind. Then an earthquake shakes the ground and tears up the earth. But it says the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then came a mighty fire. But it says the Lord was not in a fire. And finally there came a gentle whisper. And at this, Elijah covered his face and went out to meet the Lord. Now, what does this mean? I don't know. <laughs> this is very mysterious. And I read lots of commentators, and they don't, know, they don't know either. So, but let me make one suggestion of a really beautiful way to think about this, okay? When the text says that God was not in the wind and the hurricane, obviously God caused those things to happen. Those things do not just happen consecutively after another. We also know that God does often appear in these phenomenon in the Bible. He appears to Moses in fire. He appears to the Israelites in the mountain of Sinai in an earthquake. He appears to Job in a hurricane of wind, right? So God is able to make himself known in those forms, but in this particular instance, the text points out that he speaks not to Elijah in the power of the earthquake, but in the quiet of God's silent voice, which is interesting because what Elijah wanted was drama. He wanted pyrotechnics. He wanted the the overthrow of the government. You know, he wanted the toppling of Ahab and Jezebel and all of Israel to repent, and God didn't deliver for him. God did nothing. And God does not make himself known in the powerful wind and earthquake, but in the still, small, quiet of his voice. Do you see what I think? I think what God is doing is this. He's showing Elijah, I will not behave the way that you want me to behave. You cannot box me in. Elijah's mad because God didn't do what Elijah wanted him to do. He had a program. He had a plan. Things did not work out the way he wanted them to. And God says, look, you can't box me in. I never work the way that you expect me to work. You're mad because I did not act according to your plan. And let's be clear, friends. God did not let Elijah down. Elijah's plan let Elijah down. God didn't let him down. Elijah had just equated his plan with the plan of God. And that's the great lesson here, I think, is that God rarely works according to our plans. You want an earthquake? God comes in a whisper. You want a whisper? God comes in an earthquake. And in much of our time, and I'm just speaking really personally here because I know this is true of me, it's probably true of you, that much of my own despondency and despair and discouragement when I'm experiencing that, if I just scratch the surface a little bit, I'll see that it's rooted in a deeper frustration that God will not act in my life the way I want him to. That he will not do as I expected him to do. And God gently comes to Elijah and to me and to you and says, I do have a plan. It just does not happen to be yours. But I am faithful. And I am good. Might you need to hear that today? Some of you. Might you need to be gently challenged in that way? I know that there's some of you who feel that way, that you did everything you know how to do and still things didn't work out. You raised your kids in the church the way they're supposed to be raised, and yet they've still strayed from you and from the Lord. You did everything you could for your marriage, and still your marriage fell apart. You prayed and prayed and prayed for healing, and and yet the one you love still dies. You live a very faithful and, and pure life, and you're still single while all your friends seem to be happily married. You're very hardworking and ethical in your job, and 
You don't get promoted while that jerk in the office does. Right? Like, what do you do when God just doesn't show up the way you want him to or expect him to? And what I want to see from this text is that these are moments of grace. It's, it's like a severe mercy in which God gently confronts our assumption that you and I know best how our lives and how the world should work. And in a very gentle way, God reaffirms his place as God and our place as creatures. I love what Elizabeth Elliot and how she puts it in her book, Gates of Splendor. And if you don't know Elizabeth Elliot, she and her husband Jim went to South America as missionaries, and her husband Jim was murdered by the very ones that they went to serve. And she wrote this after her husband's death, remarkably after his death. God is God, and because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and obedience. I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will, a will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. So can you trust? That's the confrontation. Can you trust that God's will is good and that it is unspeakably beyond your largest notions of what he may be up to? That's his confrontation. So he cares for this man. He gently confronts him in his pride. And then finally, he calls him. One of the things about personal despair, and again, I'm speaking from experience, is that it makes us very self-centered, right? It turns us in upon ourselves where we can only see our burdens, our problems, our needs. It cuts us off from other people, makes us feel like we're alone and isolated, deepens our shame. But what God does here is he gently pushes Elijah out of those misguided notions. First, he reminds him that he is not alone. I love this. Elijah was whining. I'm the only faithful one left in Israel, right? He's such a whiny baby. I'm the only faithful one. And that's what self-pity often does. Self-pity mutates into pride, in which I am the only one. I'm the only one who is faithful. I'm the only one who's holding it together. The only one left in the entire nation. And what God does is he comes to him in verse 18, and he says, actually, friend, you miscounted by (laughs) 6,999. I have other servants. I have all these other people, all these people that I'm calling to myself. You're not by yourself. You're not the only one. You have this whole community of people that I'm calling you back into and to join. And that, mercifully, is one of the things that God does when we find ourselves trapped in self-despair and shame and isolation is he says, open your eyes. You've got a community. You've got people who love you. You've got people who love you. Second, though, he reminds Elijah that he has work to do. He calls him to anoint two kings, which basically means to instigate a political coup, depose Ahab and Jezebel, and to anoint another prophet, Elisha, to replace him. So, in other words, what God is calling him to do is to go back where he came from, back into the place of trouble, back into the crisis and the conflict, and to actually go back into greater danger than he had left before. And what we see here is, again, one of the remarkable ways that God often restores and renews us as his people, especially when we are despondent and and turned in upon ourselves, is that he calls us out of ourselves to join into a greater work, a greater mission, a greater purpose that God is up to in the world. He does this throughout the whole Bible. He comes to Abraham, the elderly nobody, and he says, Abe, go. He comes to Moses, the scared and trembling fugitive, and he says, go. He comes to Jonah, the bigoted, self-centered prophet, and he says, go. He comes to the disciples, scared and terrified in the upper room, and Jesus says, go. And he comes to Paul, the murdering Pharisee, and he says, go. 
And now he comes to Elijah, prideful, self-pitying Elijah, and he says again, go. There is evil at work in the world. My people are being led astray. This world is falling apart. Is this the time for a man of God to be hiding in a cave? Go. Go back and join in my subversive mission as I seek to renew all things. Do you see that God wants to do this for you and me? When we turn in upon ourselves and we are focused on our own problems and our own needs and are pitying ourselves, when we focus on our own comfort and our own success, the more actually, the more you focus on your own significance, the less significant your life actually becomes. But the great, beautiful, ironic thing is that the more you surrender to God, you surrender your own agenda to his, you surrender your life's purpose under God's great purpose, on the one hand, your life becomes more complicated more difficult, more risky, sometimes more dangerous. But on the other hand, your life is full of purpose, amazing purpose that you could have never had just on your own. Only when God sets you free from your personal interests and self-concerns and joins you into his great mission will you actually find the purpose for which you were made. And this is what God is teaching Elijah. He's saying to him and he's saying to you and me, I am not here to join you in enacting your plans for the world. Did you know that God is saying that to you? I am not here to join you in enacting your plans for the world. God is actually saying to you, you're here to join me. To be a Christian is not to get God into your life to help you with your personal goals. It's actually the opposite, that God wants to get you into his life to help advance his. And what is God doing? He is putting the world right. He is reclaiming it. He's renewing it. He's extending his love, extending his mercy. God is calling you, broken person that you are, to get out of yourself and into his mission, his mission of love, his mission of renewal. I dare you to come up with a greater purpose for your life than that. You'll never be able to find one, to join in the purpose and the mission of God to renew all things. So here's what God does for this broken man. First, he comforts him. He just gives him some rest and some breakfast. He reminds him that he loves him and that he deeply cares for him. Some of you just need to be reminded of that today, that God loves you and he deeply cares for you. And he wants to care for you in all of your multiple needs. Second, he, he confronts him. He confronts him and shows him that he was mad, that, that the source, that the root of his despair was that God would not behave according to the way that, God want, that he wanted him to behave. So he confronts him and then finally he calls him. He calls him back out of himself, out of his isolation, back into the mission and the purposes of God. So what do you need today to be renewed? Let me just close with a story about a hero of mine named George Matheson. Um, George Matheson was, lived at the, in the end of the 19th century, and he was engaged to be married in his early 20s, but he began to go blind, and his fiancée uh, saw this, and she broke up with him because she said she did not want to live her life with a blind husband. He was devastated. He went into academics. He got a PhD. He was a brilliant student. His first book, however, had some major mistakes, and it was ripped to pieces by the academic intelligentsia. He was devastated, heartbroken. He ended up leaving the academy. So then he decided he would try to go into pastoral ministry. That's what people do when they sort of run out of options, right? He went... He went he went into the, the, the pastoral ministry, and he was actually really good at it. He was a good preacher, and, and he preached to thousands of people. But yet, he could only do it with the help of his younger sister, who was also his best friend. 
and he had a successful ministry along with her, with her help. But sometimes later, when he was about 40 years old, she got engaged. And she, began, she was going to be moving away. And at the evening of his sister's wedding, Matheson was all alone in his room, and he was in total despair. His, his sister's wedding reminded him of his own broken engagement, his longing to be married, recognizing that he probably never would be. He was full of anxiety about how he was going to continue in pastoral ministry without his sister's help, and he was in total despair. And he sat down, and he said in this, in this flash of inspiration that he never again experienced in his life again, he wrote this now famous poem, which has become a hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Apparently, he wrote it in five minutes. O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O love that will not let me go. And I want you to hear, brothers and sisters, that the story of George Matheson and the story of Elijah and your own story is the story of a love that will not let you go. Never. The story of the Bible is a story of a love that will not let you go. It is a story that climaxes in the person of Jesus, who was the quiet voice that came when everyone wanted a hurricane. And he, the Lord Jesus, has done everything that we see God doing for Elijah in this story. He has loved, he has sought, he has pursued, he has found, he has cried with you. He feeds us, he provides for us, he listens to us, he suffers for us, he dies for us, he rises for us, he ascends for us, he intercedes for us, he sends the spirit for us, he promised us to come again for us. His love will not let you go. And you may lose yourself in the wilderness. You may, but he will not lose you, ever. There is no wilderness that is too wild, there is no pit that is too deep, there is no hell that is too horrible. His love will not let you go. And you can try to lose him, but you can't. You can try to shake him, but you can't. In the end, if you're wise, you will surrender. Surrender is to his love, the love that will never, ever, ever let you go. Let's pray that we can do that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that there are stories like this in the Bible about broken men like me, like all of us, uh, people who are trapped in despair and career failure and who are suffering with despondency and discouragement and who feel totally alone and afraid. And just thank you that there are stories like this in the Bible. And I, and I, and I pray, especially for people today who might need to hear this and who might need to be touched and renewed in the same way. I pray that you would touch them, that they would hear the good news that you love them and that your love has claimed them in Jesus and that they will never be let go. I pray that in Christ's name.